Hi, and welcome to The Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at The Strad. Liam Byrne is this episode's guest as the podcast's very first viola de gambist. We spoke about how he got started on the instrument. I was curious because when I first started my musical studies as a kid, I don't remember viola de gamba being on offer. Liam's website states that he spends most of his time playing either very old or very new music on the viola de gamba, often involving electronics. Perhaps you might think of the viola de gamba playing only historical music. Liam shared with me his approach of playing a wide range of repertoire with new technology and how in doing so it opened up a world of colour and timbre. Have a listen. Liam, welcome to the Strad Podcast and I'd like to say congratulations because you are the first viola de gambist to feature on the Strad Podcast. We've had plenty of luthiers and bowed fretless stringed instruments on the podcast, but never a viola de gambist, so it's very exciting. First of all, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your history playing the instrument, because, you know, I'm thinking about my own history, how I got into playing the cello, and it's because I decided to choose the cello when it was on offer at my local Saturday morning music school. There mm-hmm. weren't any viola de gamba lessons on offer, I notice now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, tell me, how did you get into playing viola de gamba? Is it something that you sort of fell into or did you start on another instrument? How did it kick off for you? So I started on the double bass when I was 11. I, I thought the bass was a fantastic instrument and I was very tall for an 11-year-old. And at school, it was kind of easier to uh, start late with the bass as a lot of bass players do, start a bit later than violinists. And so that was my instrument. That was the instrument that I obsessively practiced as a teenager. And then I went to music college at 18 at Indiana University to study double bass. But in my first year of what was a very good, but very traditional orchestral training program, essentially, uh, I kind of realized I didn't want to play in an orchestra. So I was having a a little 18-year-old existential crisis uh, about what to do musically because it was precisely chamber music and solo playing and contemporary music that had always interested me as a bass player, as a teenager. Luckily, Indiana University has a huge and wonderful and fabulous early music department. And I met a couple of people who played other old instruments and they played me some recordings and they convinced me to take viola de gamba lessons second study and i had the great fortune of studying with wendy gillespie who is an incredible teacher and viola de gamba player one of the founding members of the vile consorts fretwork and phantasm i very shortly thereafter just fell in love with the instrument and really found my voice with it much can you transfer from the double bass to viola de gamba because am i right in thinking that it's tuned in a mixture of fourths and thirds is that right exactly uh it's fourths with a third between the two middle strings which just like on the guitar the lute is done in order that on a six string instrument the top and bottom strings then end up two octaves apart from each other that's the reason the third is there otherwise you'd have a, a d string on top and then a c-sharp string on the bottom and that'd be ridiculous <laughs> yeah that's not going to do well for your resonance no <laughs> and also in terms of the bow hold mm. is it correct me if i'm wrong underhand bow yeah that's yeah. what we call it yeah it's not just that it's underhand the main distinction is that we pull on the hairs with our second and sometimes also third fingers while we play and in that case mm-hmm. it's 
very similar to a lot of bow holds in other musical cultures. The Chinese arhu, the Turkish kemencha, the Indian sarangi is kind of similar, although they don't touch the hairs. Um, there's a Mongolian instrument, and I always forget the name of it, but they also pull on the hairs, the Greek or Cretan lyra. All these instruments play with an underhand bow hold and really pull on the hair with the finger in order to get a different kind of color in the sound. Uh, when we're playing, we're kind of actually balancing between one finger pulling on the wood of the bow and the other finger pulling on the hair of the bow. And each of those two things kind of, one of them has a more roomy resonance, one of them has a more direct core to the sound. And so kind of sometimes consciously and sometimes subconsciously, when we play, we're blending those two colors together by pulling on the hairs. It's a really direct way of coaxing the sound. and quite different from I think back to beginner stringed instrument lessons where you think don't touch the bow hair <laughs> it's not allowed but you know completely different <laughs> because it's actually necessary to get the different colors as you say it means that we use a little bit less bow speed than other players because we have this kind of almost like third dimension which is pulling on the hair you know we use speed, pressure, placement, weight, just like other string players. But then we also have this added variable, which is how much you pull on the hair itself. That changes all the other all the other elements as well. Just goes to show, you know, you change your bow hold from over to under and then you've got this mm. new technique available to you. As you probably know, the cello bow was also held like that for a very, very long time, well into the 18th century, not exclusively. But it was also in the Baroque period very common for cellists to use an underhand bow hold. And it's something that people are starting to do more and more on the cello nowadays. And when you were a double bass player, did you play French bow or German bow? I played both. The German double bass bow doesn't transfer really super exactly to the viola de gamba bow hold. But in a way, the, the path from bass to viola de gamba is a not entirely uncommon one. There's a lot of viola de gamba players who used to be bass players who kind of like me realized a bit too late that they wanted to play solo and chamber music or, you know, wanted something a little bit different. Paolo Pandolfo, one of the most famous viola de gamba players, was a bass player as well. Also slightly smaller than a double bass, I imagine. Easier to carry Easier around. Easier to carry around. It was the malleability of the sound that really drew me to the instrument in the first place, because especially as a, as a bass player in, an, in a really kind of orchestral audition focused program, a lot of the discussion is just about power and volume. That is so true, isn't it? And it's like, you know, you practice your Einheldenleben excerpts and it's all about like getting as much sound as possible and getting all the weight into the sound, but perhaps not as much discussion of color. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to rag on it, but <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was a different, it wasn't my vibe. I was a quite limp-wristed 18 year old. <laughs> Fair enough. Reading on your website earlier, I noticed that you mentioned that you're always playing music that is either very old or very new. You know, viola de gamba, old music from the 17th century, and then new music as well. And I have actually seen you perform about five years ago, performing compositions with electronics. Tell me a little bit about your approach to this, playing very, very old music and then playing new music on an instrument that is historically very old. I always loved new music and I had the good fortune of doing a lot of kind of composition type workshops when I was a teenager on the modern double bass. And so that kind of interest for me predates my relationship with the viola de gamba. But there is also a very vibrant and long standing practice of 
playing new music on the viola de gamba that's been you know throughout the 20th century uh, different people wrote for it in different ways and the viola consort fretwork which i used to play with was really kind of central in that in the practice of commissioning all sorts of people george benjamin was the first person to write a new piece for fretwork with his piece upon silence in i think 89 and that really kind of set the ball rolling for them to commission a whole load of things. And then I've been doing it, I've been focused more on solo repertoire with my commissioning work because I felt like that was something that was lacking a little bit. There's two things to answer here. One is the relationship to, to, that, to the practice of making new music. And then the other one, I guess, is electronics because the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. I suppose it's fair to say I've always been really interested in playing new music on the viola de gamba. And it's something that I have done in some context or another since being an undergraduate. And there's nothing particularly unusual about that once you get past the idea of the fact that the instrument itself is very old. Composers write for all sorts of things all the time. My journey got a little bit more interesting in 2013 when I started working with the Icelandic composer and electronic musician Valkyr Sigurdsson. He asked me to step in for the American violist Nadia Sarota for the second half of a tour of his music in Europe, which Nadia wasn't free for. Uh, and he didn't want to replace her with another violist because the music that they were playing together involved so much of their recordings and collaborations and improvisations in the studio that had they had sort of really built it together. Um, so he asked me to step in for Nadia because he wanted to try going in a completely different direction. But the viola de gamba was also capable of playing the same notes that the viola could play in the repertoire. This tour with Valkyr was six concerts. It was a hugely eye-opening experience for me. It was when I bought my first microphone, so I was really first started to begin trying to understand how amplified sound works and what electronics even means. I mean, we kind of abuse this term a lot, or we, it's a blanket term that we use a little bit too indiscriminately sometimes. I mean, sometimes when we say electronics, we refer to playing a track on your computer and then just playing in front of it like karaoke style. Other times electronics means performing live on a vintage synthesizer. Other times electronics means you know live processing of string instruments, max patching really computer music and then other times absolutely not computer music just with circuits and things. You know over the years I've done kind of a lot of different things across that spectrum. With Valkyr when we play together live it is this kind of fascinating blend between performing a piece that was recorded that sort of exists already but changing it and dragging it uh, let's say a lot of the music that we make together um, and the music that i played with him on this first tour was music that began as an improvisation and then got fixed into a composition in the studio you know with editing and layering and that kind of stuff uh, and then turned into a beautiful album and then when we perform it live, then we kind of have to drag it from the fixed album version of the piece back into the improvisational realm. So it's almost like the improvisation becomes then an art, a, a practice of kind of deteriorating the, the perfect thing that you had done. This experience with Valkyr was huge for me because it taught me the importance of listening to timbre and texture and understanding how amplified sound works in space. He had prepared a score for me of the things that I could play. But it was this kind of thing of like, oh, here's the score. You, you, you should play this. 
and these notes at these times, but also don't play those notes at those times. You have to kind of then listen and respond to the changing context because he was changing everything that he was doing on his end live. It took me about five or six concerts before I started to really understand what variables in my own playing I was supposed to use to make this music work because it wasn't just pitch and rhythm the way we're used to as classical musicians. Yeah, it's quite reactive what you have to do when you're when you've got this added element working with another person who's doing perhaps live processing or work, working with electronics, sorry to use that blanket term again. You know, it reminds me of what you just said earlier in the conversation about pulling your bow hairs and you've got this extra dimension available to you with the bow. Working with this kind of, in this way with music, reacting to different timbres in different ways than we're used to as classical musicians. That's another dimension that you can add to your sound palette. And so things are always yeah. changing. The beginning of my journey with electronics was really kind of also one of understanding sound as well. Understanding how a microphone clipped to your bridge changes the way that you play with your instrument. Because... The microphone there hears everything and the microphone kind of deletes the need for projection in a way. Because if you play with a very projecting sound, sure, it works acoustically, but then the, the microphone is not very happy with what it hears. You have to play so differently with a microphone. Absolutely. And the, it took me as a historical instrument player on a really specific journey because the viola de gamba is relatively quiet. And so we, as modern viola de gamba players, kind of developed this technique which kind of tries to push it a lot to make it heard. But then when I started playing amplified, I had to take all of that projection out of my playing in order to make a nice sound to the close microphone. And then I woke up one morning and realized, oh my God, I've accidentally done something hugely historical, which is I have deleted the need to artificially project acoustically from my playing. Because of course, a viola de gamba player in the 17th century sitting in his drawing room wouldn't have been thinking about reaching the back row of a big concert hall. And then it was through that contemporary practice yeah. of playing amplified electronic music that I learned to unlock a lot more color in my viola de gamba playing and also come to more deeply understand the role of the finger that pulls on the bow hair so that then when I was playing historical repertoire again my early music playing became like so much richer and so much more colorful. So you've got an appearance coming up on the 20th of January the D and B soundscape at Sounds Unwrapped at King's Place. Tell me a little bit about the performance. I hear it's quite a sound world that is being created with lots of speakers. What will people expect on the day? I'm super, super excited to be able to play in this immersive audio experience. The way it's going to be set up is that I'll be in the middle of the room and the audience will be all around me on four sides. The speakers are kind of spread all over the place, built into the room. The concert will feature three large pieces. One of them is a 16th century work by Pickforth. It's an innomine in five parts, which I kind of layer live. I am very cautious about playing old repertoire using electronics. I am kind of hesitant to move into any kind of crossover direction. But sometimes if something about the structure of the piece really works, I feel like the electronics can kind of highlight it in an abstract way. And the Pickforth and Nomine is a piece like this. It's for five instruments, and each instrument only plays one rhythm the entire time. So one voice plays only semi-breves, the other plays only dotted minims, then minims, and then the next voice only dotted crotchets, and the final voice only crotchets. So it's this very kind of mathematical thing, which is not, I wouldn't ever loop 
more traditional Renaissance music, but this one kind of works. And then the second piece is this beautiful piece called Suspensions and Solutions, which was written for me by the Welsh composer Alex Mills. It is for violet, gamba and reverbs, a series of reverbs. It came out of a conversation Alex and I had about the difference between inks and dyes. Inks being a suspension of color particles in a liquid and dyes being a solution of color particles dissolved in the liquid, where the liquid itself becomes the color. Alex uses reverbs in order to suspend different harmonies in the space in different ways. I've only ever performed this piece in stereo before, so I'm super excited about the chance to kind of bring an extra spatial dimension to these kind of hanging, diffusing, moving harmonies. And there's some wonderful movement in the second half of that piece as well, where he kind of musically represents the shaking of a jar of ink with all the color particles in it. And the final piece on the program is Nico Muley's Long Phrases for the Wilson Diptych. That is something that he made as a sound installation in 2015 at the National Gallery to surround the Wilton Diptych, which is a beautiful 13th century folding altarpiece. It's an interesting piece. He worked with, he sent me a, a list of phrases that he wanted me to record, almost like a shopping list of phrases. And I had no idea what their musical context was going to be. I just recorded all of the phrases and sent them back to him. And then he arranged them in this beautiful kind of sonic cathedral and added a little bit of synth and bass drum and some finger cymbals. Then it turned into this kind of infinite duration sound installation. But then because it was so fun, we mixed it down to a 15 minute version, which came out on my debut album, Concrete, in 2019. Long after that, I started to ask myself whether there was any possible way of making that piece happen live, despite the fact that it has many, many instruments on it. But I spent several weeks doing a lot of kind of very careful analysis and a lot of really complicated programming and have kind of worked out a way of reconstructing this sound installation live without relying on any pre-recorded material. So it begins with me kind of setting some drones down in the room and then basically building the installation in front of the audience and so it's a kind of a we've built i've made a the live version is a new structure of the piece that is a little bit more constructional but then does result in and follow the form of the album version of this installation so it's kind of something in between a performance and an installation but it's an extraordinary amount of fun to do liam thank you so much for joining me today on the strad podcast thank you so much for the invitation well it's wonderful to speak to a viola de gambist it's wonderful to speak to a cellist that was viola de gamba player liam byrne right now you're listening to the aforementioned long phrases for the wilton diptych by nico muley which will feature in liam's parents at sounds unwrapped on the 20th of january at king's place check the show notes for more info And don't forget to check out thestrad.com where you'll find the latest news, articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing. If you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students and if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for 7 days, start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or rating. It will help other people discover this podcast. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.